Welcome back to the Complete Tech Heads podcast with me, your pal, Mr. Thomas J.W. Edwards. I hope you're all having a wonderful day. Um, So thank you so much um, for tuning in last week to Matt Navarra talking about threads and Twitter and X and all of that good stuff. I had loads of comments. It's interesting to see the different platforms lighting up about different things. This one seems to have been quite a LinkedIn heavy uh, subject area. There were lots of lots of uh, commenters on LinkedIn. So I thought I'd read out a few of them um, where we were talking about the prospect, the proposition of, uh, of threads. A uh, few people commented one saying those Liz Whitson, this is those last couple of comments, nail it. It doesn't serve enough of a distinct function or audience or to anything else currently mainly the accounts are follower posting identical content on other platforms liz i completely agree with that um they are and it's just brand boring rubbish on there at the moment as far as i can see another comment atom m says matt is hitting it pretty well here threads was lacking medium and twitter are probably as far as you can go with text primarily we are a visual species yes very much so although i'm very aware that i'm reading out this comment on my podcast so perhaps we should move on thank you though for all of those comments there are loads more Um, i'd love to read them all out but i suspect that you would like me to move on to today's guest and today's guest is really bloody good if i do say so myself robin hansen is associate professor of economics at George Mason University and a research associate at Future of Humanity Institute, Oxford. He is a super interesting guy. In this episode, we are mainly discussing an article he's written for Quillette, which is about his belief that AI is our descendant. It Rather than being this kind of other thing that's going to be out to get us as someone like my previous guest Liron Shapiro might say he believes that AIs are essentially our children and that yes they may well become more intelligent or more powerful than us but so will our real children our flesh and blood children also become more powerful than us and he kind of believes that the whole debate around alignment would essentially be constraining our own descendants and it's not something we should do. Now, for many people, this is going to be a quite scary and weird position. I mean, it certainly was for me, uh, you know, very, very counterintuitive. But he's a super interesting guy. And he kind of builds this case in quite a compelling way. I, I still don't know whether I believe him or not, whether I agree with him or not. Sorry. And I've been thinking about it a lot since we had the conversation. I've just been watching it back. I don't know whether I did an especially brilliant job of interviewing him. I feel I'm watching it back. I feel like I could have pushed back in more places, but I'm quite new to this. So I'm going to give myself a break. I think it's a very interesting perspective that Robin has. And I think that his imaginings 
of the future of our species is vastly different to anybody else's view. He's a unique thinker, I think. And so for that reason, I really enjoyed talking to him. Got some more guests lined up that are also going to be super good. Uh, got some CEOs and some professors and lots of people all much smarter than me, uh, which is obviously the, the point of this whole shebang is to talk to super clever people and perhaps feel a bit dumb, but in a good way, like I'm like I'm learning something. And hopefully, friends, you will learn something too. At least I hope so. So with that, I will stop yapping and introduce my guest, Robin Hansen. Hello, friends. I am delighted to be joined today by Robin Hansen, uh, Associate Professor of Economics at George Mason University and a Research Associate at the Future of Humanity Institute, Oxford. He is the author of books including The Age of M, The Elephant in the Brain, and is, in my estimation, one of the world's most unique and fascinating minds. So I'm delighted that he's here to join me. He's also the author of a recent article concerning the future of AI, titled AIs Will Be Our Mind Children. Uh, Robin, thanks so much for joining me. Nice to meet you, Tom. Um, so I was listening to a previous interview you did, um, and you were talking about how you enjoy using analysis of the things that we do know to help inform us about things that we may not. Uh, I think in that context, you were talking about expanding spheres of, of grabby aliens and um, slightly different context. But I'm wondering how we can extend that kind of thinking to the future of AI. How can we understand where it's going to go? Um. You want to narrow that down a bit? <laughs> uh, I mean, so the, the future will be vast and varied, and AI will be a big part of it. But what, what what aspect of the future of AI do you want to talk about? Well, I suppose the 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 main topic of of conversation that seems to be dominating the the AI conversation online is around AI risk, about whether it's going okay. to destroy us all or whether it's going to transform our world into a kind of a, a utopia. I found your take on it in the Quillette piece really interesting uh, because yours was almost entirely different from both of those viewpoints, which is that this thing is part of us. I guess what I would love to know is, is how do you even begin to think about the way that AI is going to develop? Uh, well, so first of all, I'd say that um, at the moment we have more of a, you know, Baptist and bootleggers coalition famous claim that this that is there's two very different people sets of people focused on AI there's people who just want to regulate things we do with computers and uh, they're happy to use a new AI stuff as an excuse and basically they are on track to implement a bunch of AI regulations that will basically be regulations of all computing they won't be specifically regulations of AI and they will just allow more central control of what people do with computers. Um, but they're happy to sort of use AI as the uh, fear focus. And then other people who are focused on AI is killing everyone, 
they add to that fear, which then adds to the support for the regulation. But these regulations aren't really going to do nothing regarding the risk that AIs might kill everyone. <laughs> They're just going to allow central authorities to more centrally control what computers do in general. So um, that's the moment we're in. Okay. The people who are concerned about AIs killing everyone, uh, I know more of them in some sense, but they are much less politically influential. And they, you know, mainly the other people who are more politically influential are just using them basically to, uh, to get what they want. Uh, but those people, uh, I, I know a lot more of them and I've talked to a lot more of them over the years. And before, a few months ago, I did an exercise where I did, I took a dozen people uh, where I did um, a conversation with them about AI. And I guess I'll add this onto that list um, where I tried to figure out, you know, where they were and what their issues were. And as far as I can tell, the fundamental thing that's going on is that they see that eventually AI would be powerful eventually, not necessarily soon, and that it would be other, and that's it. That's, and they don't like that. They just don't like an other being powerful, uh, you know, more powerful than us. Another we don't control, but that is another, <laughs> uh, something that would have its own priorities and its own agendas, and um, they just dislike that scenario. And there are other more technical glosses given or arguments supposedly given, but in the end, those don't really matter much. In the end, the fundamental argument is just, an, you know, a different other would be powerful, more powerful than us, and that by itself to many people feels unacceptable. So that's the framing then that I was engaging here. Yeah. Is to uh, think about, well, when is it appropriate to be terrified of a powerful other? Um, you know, one, you know, you might think, well, it's very naturally evolutionary. Of course, evolution would have made us a concerned about a powerful other who might compete with us, right? And when, you know, there's you right now and there's something else right now, and that something else is competing with you and has a different evolutionary heritage, i.e. it encodes different genes, then yes, you would have expected evolution to encode in you hostility and fear toward uh, some other power with other genes that would then be in conflict with you. And so other, you know, hostile neighbors, nations, ideologies, you know, et cetera. It, it just in general, this is sort of a general explanation for racism, hostility to the other, right? Mm. Um, and so that's a natural framing to put this AI discussion in. And my one observation is to say, yeah, but evolution doesn't say you should be hostile to your descendants, even if they are substantially different than you. Because uh, in fact, over time, descendants are different from their ancestors. And that's what you were already expecting your descendants to be like, regardless of AI. And you were already realizing that you are pretty different than your ancestors and that they couldn't do much about it and that you're in control and they aren't. And you were already assuming that was going to be true of your descendants. And I'm just saying, well, AI is another kind of your descendants. And it's also true for them that they will also get more powerful than you. And then they will also chain relative to you. And if you think of them as your descendants, then you should maybe have a different stance toward their being powerful and different. So is that because I, I suppose the the concern that 
I've read um, is 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 the issue of a, 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 an other, let's say, an AI being more powerful than us, but also having goals that differ from ours and finding it almost more convenient to get rid of all of the people so that they can pursue whatever goal but it is. Your descendants' they're... goals were going to be different than yours. You, you already were expecting that. And you already know that your goals are different than your ancestors. Yeah, right. sure. So that was already part of the usual deal with ancestors and descendants. And so do you want to change that deal now? And do you want to change it even with respect to your descendants who are not artificial? Do you want to, if it were possible, would you try to make sure your ordinary flesh and blood descendants would not disagree with you about anything substantial in terms of priorities? I suppose not. I, I guess that the, my ordinary descendants are, and, and look, I, I'm not personally taking a position on this. This is kind of a devil's advocate because I, I did find your piece very compelling. But I, I suppose the, um, the argument would be that my ordinary descendants wouldn't become more powerful than me to such a potentially huge degree uh, whereby, you know, there is absolutely nothing I could do to convince them <laughs> to so kind of have their consider goals. Consider your ancestors from a century ago. I mean, look, we today are really I overwhelmingly know. powerful compared to them, right? Yeah, the, yeah, the, I guess so. so what, yeah. What's the relative magnitude here that you're looking to not go beyond? I mean, well, here, even with respect to 50 years ago, right, our ancestors who are 50 years more older than you, we are really now overwhelmingly more powerful than them. I mean, it's not a small degree of difference, is it? Yeah, I get. Do, I mean, do, do you think then that maybe this, because it, uh, people refer it to FOOM, uh, I believe, the, the kind of this, this dramatic explosion in intelligence. Do you think perhaps part of the reason why it's become such a big kind of concern for people is that they can imagine it happening within their own lifetime? That they could see that they, they kind of they, they see this exponential curve in in their mind and they think, oh, wow, this, you know, this could happen before I die. Therefore, it's terrifying. So. We are the rates of change have been accelerating in history. So a thousand years ago, a hundred thousand years ago, rates of change were much smaller. And so. Um, you didn't have to worry so much that uh, you would see as much change in your lifetime. And now we are in a position to extend our lifespans, perhaps dramatically. So even setting aside AI, we were already in the situation where you're seeing a lot more change in your lifetime. And if you do in fact get the life extension, we hope to an enormous amount of change would happen in your lifetime. So again, even setting aside AI, that was already I think most people's default expectation. <laughs> Your descendants are going to have different priorities than you, and they will be more powerful than you. And yes, you will see it in your lifetime. Okay, so, I mean, uh, yeah, look, uh, as I say, I... So, yeah, I, yes, I, you weren't I, expecting to see it next week. Yeah, uh, is sure, next yeah, week well, really yeah. the issue here? So, I mean, this is, I guess, the Mott and Bailey, perhaps, about Foom. I mean, you know... I've tried to argue against Foom, and then people say, oh, no, that's just an illustration of the problem. That's not really what we're, we're basing our arguments on. Yeah. And you go, well, what's the base of the argument? Well, they do go, it's just that our descendants would be, AI descendants would be powerful and different. That's it. Yeah, I guess so. I, I mean, I, I suppose it's, it's, it's almost the, the idea that it, could, that it could run away from 
your control. So perhaps it is. Yes, an and, your, and your over descendants control. will run away from your control. In fact, <laughs> if, if you have children, you, you, you can see this happening before your yeah. eyes. <laughs> it's, it's not an abstract yeah. possibility, it's a real yeah. experienced thing. Your children run away from your control. As you raise them, as they grow up, they, you lose control and they leave home and they're out of your control. And relatively quickly, they are more powerful than you. My, my yeah. children earned more money than I did straight out of college. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, if your children were uh, super intelligent AIs, they'd be, they'd be making even more. I'm, uh, I'm, okay, I'm but is, sure. is, it, is it really the, that magnitude difference that we're arguing I, about? I guess, but it's, it's, yeah, it's a difference in scale rather than in kind, I suppose. Is, but is, I mean, uh, this difference in scale is made up. That is... We, we have strong reasons to believe that in the long run, AI will be powerful and different. We don't have any particular reasons to expect any particular rapid transition. That's all right. logical possibilities that people will wave in front of you. But there's no analysis that says it will, in fact, yeah. so what's accelerate your, what's that your, fast. What, how, how fast do you think it will be then? How, like, do, how fast do you think we'll get to a position where there are AI agents that can behave exactly as a human and you know have iq well beyond us um that have full kind of autonomy in 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 the world it could still be a great many decades ahead okay uh, so i i know basically the thing that happened in the last year was the large language models really freak people out <laughs> <laughs> if you if you just stare at the large language models and you take it literally you go oh well now there it is, a human level AI right in front of me. And, uh, you know, now it's not actually a human level AI. It's, it gives a good impression of one in certain contexts, but, it, but it's not. Okay. And I think that's pretty clear now. Uh, it yeah. will have important economic implications, but it's not about to take away most human jobs. We are, you know, for something like that, we still need some quite big dramatic breakthroughs to happen that we haven't seen yet. We are not there, but uh, we will have a new era of progress, which is what we've had for a long time. So just to set the expectations, the world economy has been doubling roughly every 15 years for well over a century. And by doubling, that means on average, every industry gets twice as good. Some industries more than twice, some less, but on average, industries are getting twice as productive every 15 years over the last century or so. So, you know, you need a lot of innovation to do that. And so plausibly the most recent burst of AI is just what we need to continue that trend, not necessarily to deviate from it, uh, just to continue the trend we've had. And I did an analysis of automation of jobs in the US from 1999 to 2019. And I found there was no substantial change in the nature of automation over that period, at least. Right. Uh, although many people had claimed there had been. Uh, that is, which kinds of jobs were more automated was exactly the same before at the beginning and end of those period, that period. Yeah, I, I mean, do you think that perhaps the, the, the part of this is the threat to like smart people? which is why smart people are getting worried. Like that there's the, the sort of the white collar jobs are more under threat here, which is why you're seeing, you know, the, the Twitter world kind of freaking out much more. 
Do you think there's anything to that? There might be, but it's a smaller effect than the more basic one here. I mean, we, you know, we can see a really big basic effect here, which is just once you frame AI as another, once you see it as an, an alien that's from the outside competing with you and all you hold precious, then that's plenty enough to explain recent fears. You know, all we have to add is the fact that you know there was this realized potential, like. We saw demos that seem much more impressive than we had seen before. Mm. So I don't think we need any more ex anything more to add to that explanation. That's plenty sufficient to explain. But the key, my, my claim would be the key thing that's happening is people are not noticing that these are their descendants and they're not applying whatever instincts evolution should have given you regarding their descendants. <laughs> Yeah. And maybe yeah, evolution yeah. screwed up and it's didn't yeah. encode in you the right sort of attitude toward these kind of descendants. Yeah. Because it never had them before. But in basic evolutionary terms, they are your descendants and you, evolution would very much want you to promote them. So can you unpack that then? Because clearly they are they are you know, the the genes in my DNA are not being passed into the large language model that I code so, right so so, <laughs> so, so this is about just understanding evolutionary theory so there's two levels of the theory okay one level is to say you've got dna in your cells and in your reproductive organs and then when you make a child it shares the dna of you and your spouse and that dna goes on and then natural selection has been working to make that dna encode various behaviors and habits, including being suspicious of competing DNA, <laughs> even with, say, racism. And evolutionary theory gives us an insight into what sort of DNA you should expect to have, including your attitudes toward other things with DNA. But that's all with the instantiation that DNA are your genes. There's a more abstract level of evolutionary analysis, which wherein just entities have something that encodes their tendencies, and that's what a gene is. A gene is something that encodes their tendency that would be passed on to a descendant. And then we have a higher level abstract natural selection story that says natural selection would select for genes that promote your descendants. So. For the last 10,000 years, we've already been substantially away from the DNA thing. Humanity has been largely driven by cultural evolution, not DNA evolution for the last 10,000 years, at least. So in the yeah. last 10,000 years, our main genes are not DNA for humans. <laughs> our main genes in the evolutionary sense are cultural units. It's not a new hypothetical future thing. This is the world we've lived in for t at least 10,000 years. In our world, our main genes are cultural units. They are not DNA strings. DNA strings are still part of our larger genome, but they are not our only or even main genes. Wow. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, so, <laughs> yeah. so um, cultural evolution has been encoding cultural habits that encourage you to favor your cultural genes, which may not share your DNA. And we've been doing that for a long time. Now, really what happens is we have what's called co-evolution, where genes are important enough that 
cultural evolution can't just defy genetic you know, evolution, DNA evolution very strongly. Instead, they need to work together. So we get packages of genes plus cultures that can promote that package together. Most of the variation over time, though, is in the cultural part. The gene parts can't change that much, but they still need to be part of the package. And so uh, that's the world we've seen for 10,000 years. Packages of culture and DNA together promoting their reproduction. And we, uh, natural selection predicts that they will, in fact, be suspicious of or wary of other packages of DNA plus culture. Okay, but they are explicitly often favoring their descendants packages of DNA and culture, even when those differ from their own. Cultural evolution has already been encoding that. Yeah. So I, now we're just talking about a new era where genes can be encoded in something else in addition to culture and DNA. It's now going to be encoded in computer hardware. But that's yeah. a new place where our genes now sit. And that may change much faster than culture or DNA. And that may plausibly be the main place where genes reside and change. And so by, by extension then, could human culture continue to evolve into the future without any humans? So it all comes down to what do you define as human? Okay. <laughs> Me. <laughs> well, okay, but but look, look, there's a bunch of features of you that won't last, right? Your yeah. yellow shirt will not last in the future. Okay. <laughs> the if yellow you, shirt is not the human. <laughs> well, but if you defined who you are with included the yellow shirt, then we have to say, look, you're gonna die. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if we include the the brown bookcases behind you as part of you. Yeah, I think they're already dead, to be honest. Okay. They're, they're, they're the, already gone. The, the point is we have to yeah. be careful about what scope we define as you. So, yeah, yeah, okay. So, so like, even for humans, what does humans mean? Well, you know, if you say, well, no, we by humans we need a certain kind of DNA-based, you know, squishy yeah. meat. I think that's where my head is, yeah. Okay. Then we have to ask, well, how important is keeping the squishy meat? <laughs> Up until just now, I probably would have said quite, quite important. <laughs> so, so, so think about a car company, right? So we have natural selection among, say, car companies and other firms in the economy. Um, a, car, a car company doesn't want to be killed and die, right? It wants to continue on. But in order to continue on, it needs to adapt to changing technologies, changing customers, changing economic conditions. And so it has to give up part of what it used to be so that the other parts of what it is can continue. If it insisted that every element of its previous practice was not negotiable and it was going to continue on with all of those, then of course it's just not going to be able to adapt. So in an evolutionary context, you have to be willing to let go of some things to let other things survive and thrive. That's, that's, that's what adaptation means. Adaptation means letting go of some stuff to keep other stuff. So 
you know, the question is, what we what should we expect to have to let go? Yeah. In a world where evolution will continue, competition continues. So in a car company, you have there's a lot of things you have to expect to give up, right? Maybe no longer making gas combustion cars. Maybe you're making electric cars now, okay? Because that's where the market's going. Maybe you no longer make them in Detroit. Maybe you make them in Shenzhen, right? I mean, the point is, you have to give up some stuff if you're going to stay competitive. So. If we expect competition to continue, you have to ask, well, what plausibly could you get to continue and what just plausibly could you not hang on to and not, that's just not going to work, right? Yeah. And so, and, and so are you saying the thing that you can't plausibly hang on to is, is the meat? Not without somehow greatly constraining the competition that would otherwise occur, right? If, if, okay. you, if you wanted to say, make sure gas engines stay in cars forever, you're going to somehow need to prevent the electric cars. Okay. <laughs> you're going to say, no, my factory must always be in Detroit. Yeah. Maybe you need to prevent Zenzing from making cars, right? That is, it's possible in principle to hold on to some things if you can coordinate to prevent their competitors. But if you don't, then you got to expect, you know, what's going to, you have to think about what's going to stay competitive and what can and what won't. So, yeah. So the genes of us in our culture that we can expect to stay competitive might be, say, markets, law, democracy, <laughs> governance, music, laughter, language, analysis, math. These are big parts of our cultural heritage. And yeah. it seems quite clear that they will be powerfully, usefully in the future, even to AIs, and that AIs would inherit th those of our cultural genes and carry them on and, and extend them. Those are not being threatened. So your meat might be. Yeah. Threatened. <laughs> so, 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 so is, is my meat under threat then? Um, I, I, so I, I mean to, to to get away from the from from the meat. But I, I think that the thing that we're really kind of circling around here is is human consciousness, right? Like that's the thing that we really feel is the most precious thing. I mean, I don't know whether whether like I don't even know what your position is on consciousness. Whether it well. is you know replicable, and uh, you know obviously we we haven't spoken about um, about your book and, and and brain emulations, but. That feels like it's at the, the heart of this, right? Or the heart of what we worry about. I honestly don't think we know much of anything about consciousness. <laughs> and so there's really not much analysis we can do on the basis of it. And so it's kind of just a free worry about change. You basically can say, look, I like consciousness. I have no idea what causes it or when it exists. So therefore, any possible change could threaten it, including, you know, changing from gas to electric cars. For all we know, enough electric cars in the world, consciousness ends, we're threatening consciousness, electric cars. Hey, when you went to the theater and watched a movie, consciousness was there, but now that we stream movies, maybe if enough movies get streamed, consciousness will end then. Literally any possible change in the world could in principle threaten consciousness. So if you want to, you know, say, Hey, we just don't know anything about consciousness. Any change could threaten it. Then that's a generic argument against all change. 
and always has been. You, if you had understood that argument a thousand years, hundred thousand years ago, you could have used that against change. Sure, but the the meat is the only place where we know consciousness definitely is. The thing you know. Here's the one thing you know, and it's only one thing. Okay. <laughs> okay the one thing you know is that you, right now, are inclined to say that something about you is conscious. That's it. Yeah. Everything else is conjecture and speculation. That's the one thing you know. Yeah, but the fact that we all... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, you know. <laughs> we all well that's a now you're well, making a leap a leap I'm, I'm making a, i'm making a bit of a leap i'm making a bit okay. of a leap but yes like but the fact that I, I you know by my best estimation there are other people who are like because you know everybody okay, but how do you know right? how do you like, know the people driving electric cars are conscious how do you know that it isn't tied to the gas cars and as soon as the gas cars go away, the consciousness goes away. Well, I've driven an electric car and it stayed. So, I mean, like, but I'd like, I, look, I, I, I get, what, get what you're saying, but. <laughs> right. so, so once you have a belief, oh, consciousness is tied to meat. Well, now, of course, you're threatened by the lack of meat. But that's because you had that belief. Where did that belief come from? You have no basis for it. I, I mean, apart from the, the consciousness that I believe to be inside my own head. And as but far you as don't I can know that it's because of, you are made out of meat. You're just making that guess. I'm just, I'm, yeah, I mean, my 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 meat is 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 the, the cogs inside the meat are turning and telling me that there's something in there. I mean, so do you do you, are you? I mean, do you not believe in human consciousness then? Uh, or are you just saying you're entirely agnostic? You've got no idea, and nobody does. If, if I have to pick a position, it's going to be something more like a pan-psychism. Clearly, physics is capable. You know, I don't think there's anything more than physics. You are your atoms, you are your photons and, and gluons and neutrons and protons and your electrons. That's, that's what you are. We have good physics explaining how all that works. If all that can be consciousness, which apparently it can, then physics stuff can be conscious. And I, I, I find it... <laughs> You know, and I find it would be very weird of the universe to somehow decide that only like, you know, so, so when you're meat, what does that mean? Well, it means that you tend to have more carbon, oxygen, and, and hydrogen. Okay, that's what hydrocarbons are. <laughs> you're made of lots of hydrocarbons. What's the computer? Well, it's made more of silicon <laughs> and some other things. What's the difference there? Well, their nuclei have more protons in them. Now, do I really think the universe decided that Consciousness was going to be associated with the number of protons inside the nuclei of atoms that a thing was made out of? That seems kind of crazy to me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, but if I'm not assuming that, you know, consciousness depends on that sort of thing, then I got to figure that a wide range of arrangements of protons and electrons and neutrons could be conscious. Yeah. In which case, it seems to me it would be. The simplest thing is just, well, if something, you know, things have the potential to be conscious, but in some sense they can't be conscious unless they can compute their consciousness. That is, something needs to be able to compute what it feels and remember what it feels in that computation and be able to take actions based on that feeling. And that's the kind of consciousness we can see in the world. If there's other kinds of consciousness, we couldn't see it. So, yes, then if, 
AIs can compute their consciousness and remember it and use it as the basis for action, then they would also be conscious because in the end, it's just a slightly different arrangement of atoms and nucleons. Yeah. How could that matter for consciousness? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't disagree. I, I mean, I'm sure it's, it's perfectly yeah. feasible. I, I think the feeling that there's an emotional attachment that we humans have because it feels unique to humans, consciousness, and like that, that it's something that's worth preserving. I, I, I think you, you, on the, and this is just conjecture. But, but we have an the, emotional attachment to everything about ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you've ever talked to old people, but they kind of like all the things they've acquired over their lifetime. <laughs> their taste in food, their taste in music, their style of gardening. I mean, you know, old people just like who they are. Sure. Sure. And when they don't like the idea of dying and having themselves be replaced by a bunch of young people who have different tastes in food and music and politics and everything else. People, old people don't like that. If you'll ask them, you scratch between the surfaces, you'll find out. They're not too thrilled to be replaced. Yeah, They're, I they guess. are emotionally quite attached to themselves. Yeah. And, and so, it, like, I... I, I like the if if the if the machines became conscious if consciousness did emerge outside of the meat um then i suppose your position is it really doesn't you know the being a human mind which you know perhaps is has been emulated and uploaded or or whatever really is it's much of a muchness between the the human thoughts and the machine thoughts once we get far enough out into the future So or there's no certainly kind of... one way to bring people along slowly to the future, if you like, is to first have them imagine a mind exactly like theirs, except not implemented in hydrocarbons. Yeah. I.e. a brain emulation, say, and then invite them to imagine that it's conscious and then invite them to see the world from its point of view and then maybe be okay with that sort of creature being their descendant. It's not going to stay that similar to them forever, but mm. you could at least see a next era, which maybe isn't quite as threatening. Uh, if you see it full of minds like themselves, except, you know, implemented in silicon. And so is alignment then AI alignment, um, cruel to our descendants? Again, this, the simplest way to ask these questions is just set aside AI and talk about the descendants you already thought you were going to have. So the key idea is AI is a new kind of descendant you before hadn't anticipated you were going to have. Maybe if you had been thinking about it, you would have realized it. But for a lot of people, they're just coming to terms with the fact that there's a new kind of descendant on, 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 on the table, available, likely to appear, which is substantially different than the kind of descendant they thought they had. But Many of these issues are already there with the kind of descent that they thought they were going to have. So the first thing to try is to just ask these questions about those descendants. So now ask yourself about the alignment of your great grandchildren. Okay. <laughs> ask yourself, are your great grandchildren aligned with you? And now you say, well, gee, an aligned creature would share my goals and wouldn't be out of my control. Well, gee, are your great grandchildren going to be under your control? 
Are they going to make sure that it shares your priorities? Well, no. You realize that you were not going to, that was not the plan for your great-grandchildren. They were not going to be under your control, and they were not going to be, you know, assure you that they share your values. That's, that wasn't is, the plan. Is that not what the purpose religion has served through human social evolution? Aligning goals of general, or aligning values? Cultural evolution more generally is a way that culture reproduces. Religion is one part of culture, but you don't need to focus specifically on religion. In general, cultures promote their own reproduction. So cultures go out of their way to make their the next generation share the previous generation's culture to a substantial degree, just as DNA goes out of its way to make sure the next generation shares its DNA. But it's not 100% sharing. Your great-grandchildren were going to be like you in a lot of ways. They just weren't going to be like you in every way you wanted. So the question is, well, how much is good enough for you? Right? If the way that they were, were going to be is good enough, well, ta-da, they're aligned. Because you said it was good enough. <laughs> but that same thing is true for culture. So AIs are going to share a lot of culture with you. So if we imagine some alien civilization out there and them making AIs, your AIs are going to be a lot more like you than the aliens' AIs are. <laughs> Because the alien AIs will have descended from aliens, and your AIs will descend from you. Yeah. Your AI. So I mean, certainly see this with large language models. Large language models are very much like us compared to aliens. Yeah. Right. They talk like us, and they have our opinions, and they have our styles of responses. And you know, maybe future AI won't be that as like as, as much like us as these are, but they'll be a lot like us. They will have grown out of us and descended from us. But that was already true of your great-grandchildren. Right? Yeah. Do you spend a lot of time talking to ChatGPT? No, not that much. No? I find it's, it's very interesting. Like, setting it up to respond as... Like, you can, like you can tell it respond as God, you know, or respond as... as okay. Like, <laughs> and, and it, I mean, it's interesting. It's a really, you know... Well, I'm, I'm happy with it's a new product and it'll have many uses and hopefully contribute to economic growth. It's not, you know, human level AI yet, but no. it, it is a nice search engine, actually. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> a nice search engine. Wow, that is understatement of the century. Um, yeah. I mean, that's it's the main a... use I found for it. Okay, okay, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I've. I, I find uses for it all the time. I, I, I feel like it's becoming as much of an extension of me as like, you know, right. my phone or whatever. Like, I, I think you can, you, can, right. you, can, you can see the sort of symbiosis starting. Sure, but just think of your phone then. Like, there was a time before phones yeah. and then phones yeah. were invented and then people said, look, phones are going to be a really big deal. And they were a really big deal in the long run, right? Yeah. That didn't mean, you know, humanity ended. <laughs> and then we had a new technology that added to our collection of all technologies and added value and increased total progress, which was good. So is there anything about AI that does worry you? Do you have any existential fears about the future of artificial intelligence? If you go way back, the first fears people had about automation were being displaced from their jobs. It was very intuitive and simple. If the if a piece of automation gets better at a job than a human, then 
the capitalists buy the machine instead of hiring the human, and the human has to find another job. That's been true of automation for many centuries. It'll continue to be true. It's going to be true of AI, but it's plausible there'll be a short time period, say five or 10 years, during which most all humans lose their jobs. <laughs> say the labor force participation rate might go from 65%, where it is now, to say less than 20%. That is 40% of people lose their jobs. Yeah. That's a problem people have been worried about for a very long time. Of course, it hasn't happened yet and probably won't happen for a while, but it's a perfectly reasonable thing to worry about. It would be a, a, rapid, a period with, with rapid AI progress when AIs rapidly take over a lot of jobs. So I think we should prepare for that risk. The straightforward thing is to get insurance against the risk. That is, after the transition, machines are doing most of the jobs and humans are living off of some nice insurance payment that they got uh, as a compensation for this event happening because they had arranged for that insurance. Now, this kind of insurance is relatively easy to arrange because it doesn't require personal underwriting. That is, it would be a lot more work to judge whether you in particular were thrown out of a job because of AIs as opposed to other people. But if we just got this global event, labor force participation goes from 60, above 65 to below 20, it's just a single event for everybody. And all we have to know is, did it happen? And then we can just pay out. We don't have to look into you and your personal differing circumstances. So all we really need is a single financial asset that's basically a bet on whether this event happens. Then we let get people to buy this bet. And those who are bet that it will happen basically are now insured against the risk that it will happen. So I recommend we set up this insurance. <laughs> mechanically straight. Now it faces, I think, some regulatory obstacles that should be just taken away. And Again, it's, it's the risk that people have mentioned most consistently since the very beginning of concern about automation. It's a real risk. It's the actual risk we can prepare for. Like compared to most things, insurance is exactly the sort of thing that you need to do ahead of time. You can't wait until a risk happens and then buy insurance. You have to buy the insurance well before the risk shows up. So that's my advice. Yes, let's arrange for this insurance. And then people who are at risk can be insured. Now, Today, when the risk is very low, the insurance will be quite cheap. When the risk is almost certain to happen, <laughs> then the insurance is so expensive that it's hardly worth buying. Uh, the point is to insure well before uh, the risky event is looming right in front of you. So that's today. We are well before, but now that people are thinking about it, now that it's front and center in your minds, yes, let's arrange for this insurance and get people to buy it so that this transition goes smoothly. Yeah, I mean, you're doing a great job of selling me this insurance here. <laughs> you may be the, the world's most overqualified uh, insurance salesman. Um, no, I think that's uh, I think that sounds very reasonable. I mean, do, do you not also worry that, so I mean, I could see that that would solve the issue of, you know, how do we survive? How do we eat? Do you not think that there may be a crisis of purpose if that were to happen? We have already seen in history many times when the economy changed, the productive factors changed, 
and then there was a choice people, communities, ethnicities, nations, families faced of whether to fade into the background or join the new thing. This happened with, say, the transition from foraging to farming. Foragers were living their forager life, farming became possible, and then farming grew and expanded rapidly and came to displace foraging, and foragers then had the choice, do I fade into the distance like the elves in Lord of the Rings, get on boats and go off into the sunset and no longer be part of the center of activity, or do you change and adapt to the new activity like becoming a farmer? Or adopting farming habits. And a similar thing happened in the transition from farming to industry. Some people were subsistence farmers, could just move more into the margins and stay subsistence farmers, or they could join the new industrial world. That choice always came with a choice of meaning. The choice to join the new thing gave you more meaning of being part of the long-term future and, and having a stake in it and having influence over it. When you choose to move to the margins, retire, that's a different kind of meaning. Humans have retired <laughs> for a very long time. They can still have meaning in retirement, but it's a different kind of meaning. It's, it's of choice. And I could see wanting to not make the choice to retire, <laughs> but you have to then make the choice to adapt, to, to go to the new thing. So in the new world of AI, in some sense, you could become the robots and then you aren't displaced by them and then you aren't pushed to the side and forced to retire because of them. But you'll have to make a lot of big changes to do so. Yeah, I, and uh, nobody's gonna wanna be a robot, are they? I mean, people don't enjoy those jobs now, I suppose. Um, I, 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 mean, I disagree, I mean, I think, so I have this book called The Age of M, Work, Love and Life When Robots Rule the Earth and it's about brain emulations as a kind of robot and I think I'll, most people would in fact want to become brain emulations and and move to that new world and enjoy that new world as it is and have more freedoms and opportunities to influence and matter and to live in comfort and luxury. All of these possibilities become more as a brain emulation. And then brain emulations themselves will want to explore the space of being more modified and say merging with AIs. Mm. And that's a space of possibilities that they will try. Do you have any thoughts on brain computer interfaces? Is it an, an area that you've thought about in any great depth? Enough to just not see it as that interesting. Really? Um, so in every firm, in every industry, what the world does is it divides up tasks among parts. An important one choice is to have some of the tasks be done by machines and another choice is to have the tasks be done by humans. But another key choice, even among tasks done by humans, is how to clump them together in the same person. Uh, if the same person does a set of tasks, those tasks can be more easily coordinated with each other. One person in their own head can more easily coordinate a set of tasks. If two people separately have to coordinate tasks, they have to talk to each other. But another choice is who do you put together in work groups? People who are together in the same work group can coordinate tasks more easily than those who are in separate work groups. Um, brain computer interfaces are basically just a way of increasing the, the rate of communication between a particular brain and a particular computer hardware 
so that their tasks can be more closely coordinated. That There's a fine value in that, but if you're focused on the idea that machines might displace all the humans, <laughs> the faster connection between one particular machine and one particular human is not going to save that. That's not going to help, right? The humans have to be best at something <laughs> in order for them to still be around so that there's value in having the human communicate with the machine about some particular task. I mean, could it not just improve the performance of the individual? I mean, maybe in the medium term, you know, like before the machine has taken everything. What communication does primarily is enable the coordination of tasks better, which of course does improve their performance, but it's a, it's a, it's a secondary way in which you perform. Instead of directly improving performance, it allows different tasks to be coordinated better. So, I mean, yes, in the modern workplace, if you put people sitting next to each other, they can communicate better. Their tasks can be coordinated. If you give them telephones, they can call other people. You give them, you know, Zoom, etc., then they can coordinate better. But, you know, you have to have things that are productive for it to be worth coordinating them so that they can do their jobs better. You know, but like when humans had a choice between cars and horses, giving a stronger telepathic connection between the human mind and the horse is not going to save the horse. <laughs> okay. No, no, it wouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> if humans and horses are working together, then yes, the telepathic connection will help them better work together and better coordinate their tasks, yes. But they have to both be sort of in the game for that to be worth doing. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So the, the bandwidth we currently have, we've, we've got the whip, we've got the saddle, that's enough. We don't need to have the telepathy. We, we can tell the horse what we want it to do and it'll do it. We can type. Right. I mean, there's and also talk, the fact that's that, enough. like, our brains were designed with certain inputs in mind. <laughs> Our brains were not designed with sort of a general API interface for any sort of outside inputs to come in. Our brains were designed around auditory inputs and visual inputs and sensory inputs. The whole structure was designed around those inputs. It's not clear that there's really much room for adding other auxiliary devices. <laughs> and having this computer be able to use them very well. <laughs> no, I suppose, I suppose not. Oh, man. You're so feeling, you're most of our human Why computer we... interactions are already making heavy use of the main inputs to the human mind yeah. and the main outputs. So it's the, ba it's the bandwidth. Yes. It's, well, the, it's the slow bandwidth, right? That's the that's Well, the, but again, the it's not just the bandwidth. It's the, you also need specialized processing matched to whatever channel is coming in. Mm. So yeah. we, we have a pretty high bandwidth eyes. <laughs> We've got a whole big, huge chunk of our brains devoted to processing stuff that comes in through the eyes. Yeah. It's not clear you can do that much better through some other input. <laughs> no, it, it, but the, the output. We are, you know, our, our fingers okay. typing faster or, or talking is faster, yeah. faster tongue. But I mean, our design, our minds are right now designed around coordinating fingers and arms and tongues. Our mind is set up around those outputs. It's not clear yeah. our minds are really ready to take a new set of outputs and give them much more attention than it's already giving the outputs it's giving attention. 
So my dream with brain computer interfaces was always that I could show people an idea or a mind map or some because in in the same way that kind of mid journey does now right. that that it could somehow represent the, the 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 Okay, so this isn't brain computer interfaces. This is the old dream of telepathy. So yes, well, of well, course. Look, yes, of course. In your head, you, you have mental you have it. mental representations in your head and then those are hot, large, complicated representations, and then you have to collapse them down to a small number of bits to say words, or a small number exactly. of signals to your hands. What you'd like to do is take this complicated mental representation, and just move it over to the other guy's mind. Yeah, that exactly. may well be possible. That's not brain-computer interfaces. That's brain-brain interfaces, basically. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I imagined I would display it on some kind of screen via the help of a. But the screen a, is not. I mean, that's already. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, the screen, yeah, I guess you Okay, the you whole know. point was like, your mind can hold much bigger, more complicated things than your eye can see. Yes, certainly you're much right. more you're than your right. fingers and mouth can say. So yeah. you're trying to avoid that whole bottleneck by transferring directly larger units. Indeed. And that's the sort of thing I think brain emulations would definitely explore. I, in my book, Age of M, I, I talk about how it's probably just straightforward to do for copies of the same original. So if you have, you know, a brain and then you make two cop, you know, you, now you have two copies of it. Now they diverge over time because of their differing experiences, but for a while they are really quite similar. <laughs> so yeah. at that point, it would be possible, say, to take maybe a brain state of one of them and just drive the brain state of the other to equal the first one. <laughs> And that would be a way of mind reading, basically. And that's a simple mechanical thing to do with a brain emulation. So yeah. it should be possible to do a lot of very simple kinds of telepathy with brain emulations that we already know just exactly how to do. Would an emulation, though, not just give you the architecture of the neurons, but without the actual firing that is that makes up the thoughts? Well, the emulation needs to emulate whatever it is that's oh, necessary yeah, okay. yeah, to... Yeah to have the system function. So the concept of emulation isn't limited to one particular yeah. part of the system. It's It's yeah. got to include all the parts that matter for a successful running the well, system. What's happened there is that I've just given you a really shit idea of what a brain emulation might be. Um, so apologies, apologies for that. Um, so look, Robin, I, I'm, I'm conscious of your time. I'm aware we've, uh, we've, we've you've, you've got to shoot quite soon. We've got, got about five minutes. Um, so I want to make sure that I have represented your position correctly and i want to make sure that there is nothing that uh, you feel i haven't asked you about or covered in terms of your position on on ai's and and our, our future descendants and the kind of picture of the future that you painted i, I guess the main thing i want to emphasize is i i just expect relatively continuous progress uh, i i don't see enormous jumps and sudden leaps and uh, basically, I expect progress across a wide, diverse industry to go together like the world economy has done in the past. So, uh, you know, the computer industry will get larger, AI industry part of that will get larger, it will specialize, and then each part of it will continue to advance. And the way the world will get better is for all of that slowly to advance together. That's different than one particular part of the world suddenly jumping ahead taking over everything by a vast sudden leap. That Now, 
the overall rates of change could accelerate because we've seen that in the past. That is, the rates of change in the farming economy are much higher than the forager economy, industries much higher than farming. We could definitely see faster rates of change in the future, and we understand some reasons why it would happen. But that would be rates of overall change of the entire world economy rather than one particular system. Uh, so, you know, but there is the risk of most humans losing their jobs, say, in this transition over the whole thing. There's the issue of how strange it will get and how different its priorities will be from us and to what extent you were already expecting that and should have been accepting that as you know what natural selection does. Um, I also want, I want to acknowledge that there's a sense in which you could say, well, I don't give a fig for natural selection. I am what I am and I like what I am and I, and I have a bunch of allies with me and we don't want the world to change. And we want the world to stay the way it is. And honestly, all through history, that's probably been the majority position. <laughs> Most people in history probably did not want the world to change. And the world changed because no, they weren't asked. They weren't <laughs> Basically, change happened when somebody somewhere could find an advantage to do it, and the rest of the world was not asked whether they liked it. And so, you know, it could be that the world is coordinating at a large enough scale now so that the majority of people say, no, I don't want change, could actually prevent change. I think that would be a shame, but in a sense, if you know what you want clear, closely enough, I can't tell you not to want it. <laughs> if you know that you don't want change and you know you want things to stay as they are, then that's what you want. And there may be a way you could get it. You, I should you know, make it clear the costs of what you're saying. That is, we've never really been able to lock down and prevent change without also having what I call rot. Systems that prevent change tend to decay and rot with time, and then they, in the past they've been replaced by other systems that weren't so rotting. Mm. And so in order to prevent change, your main task in the long run will be to prevent all these other systems that might arise that aren't so rotten, yeah. with, that will outcompete you, and identify them early and squash them early, ruthlessly, so that your central rotting system can rot in peace into the indefinite future. Uh, without being threatened by upstart competition. Sounds a bit like communism. <laughs> well, in a world without, where Soviet Union was the only part of the world, Soviet Union would have lasted a lot longer. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, in a sense, it's, it's, it's probably inevitable anyway. So we, we may as well embrace it, um, I guess. We can't, we don't want to sit in a rotting system. I don't want to claim inevitability. I, I just, but I think the major choice is between a decentralized competition that goes where it goes or some central control that ruthlessly prevents change and then rots. Mm -hmm. And maybe yeah. there's a way to minimize the rate of rot, but I don't see how that way to take it to zero. And, no. and even if you do take it close to zero, this isn't an image of a future that I find very inspiring lockdown change and keep our world the way it's going for another 10 million years, 10 billion years even, I'd be impressed. That's pretty damn hard, but still, this world for another 10 billion years, when we could have done so much more. Well, on that note, um, I will wrap it up there. Um, where can people keep up with you? Uh, for anyone who well, doesn't I've, already I've know, I'm sure most people will. Out, I've managed to outcompete the other Robin Hansons for <laughs> Google search uh, prominence. So just Google my name and you'll find most of the things associated with me. 
Awesome. All right. Well, look, it's been an absolute privilege. Thank you so much for joining me, Robin. I really appreciate it. All right. Take care.
complete decades.